Well, today we're talking about a subject. I mean, we have our hopes up about the possibility of a pastor. We often have our hopes up about a lot of different things. Sometimes we have our hopes up about maybe a World Cup team. We were hoping the U.S. would go farther than it did, and shucks, we got edged out by Brazil, you know. And, um, but at least we didn't lose seven to one. <laughs> For those who are following Brazil, aye, aye, aye. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we get our hopes up and we get them dashed. You know, we, we hope for a, our team to win a national championship and it doesn't. And, uh, uh, or maybe we have hopes of getting admission to a school and we don't make it. Uh, I had a, a dear friend who took his MCATs yesterday hoping to get into medical school, and he's waiting for the results, hoping, hoping, hoping. We get hopes up for a lot of different things, you know. Some have hoped for a very long time for a child before God gives them a child, or maybe does not give them a child of their biological own, but chooses instead to bless them in another way, in a way that reflects his choosing us in Christ, adopted into his family. There are ways that we get our hopes up and ways that God answers our prayer. Uh, someone asked, uh, asked uh, Spinoza on his deathbed, uh, uh, and he said, uh, do you pray to God? Yes. He said, and, uh, well, do you, uh, do you think he answers your prayers? He says, that's his job. <laughs> reputed to have said, that's his job. No, it's not his job. The prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That's what the scripture says. It says that he doesn't hear the prayer of the wicked. So how do we who are wicked ever have our prayers heard? And the answer is because the only way that's possible is when the barrier of our wickedness is dealt with and only God can do that. That's what we've been singing about. And it gives us grounds for hope. There are people here today who are facing a medical condition, the prognosis for which is grim. There are those here today who are waiting on the Lord for provision of works, employment, so that they can support their families. They've never been in that position before. There are those here who are hoping and looking to the Lord for reconciliation within their families, perhaps a marriage that's stressed, or perhaps between parents and children, those relationships. Or maybe it's something to do with, with uh, work, or neighborhood relationships and those are part of the problem for which people look to the Lord and hope at least if we're believers we do we cry out to God maybe it's something else don't know what it is you're hoping for today but we all have hopes and God addresses our hopes in the text we have before us and uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 13. If you don't, please use the bulletin. Uh, it'll have the version that I'm using today, the 1984 NIV. I'll be reading uh, verses uh, um, 7 through uh, 13 as our text. Romans chapter, thir chapter 13, uh, verses 7 through 13. I'm sorry, Romans 15. 7 through 13. Romans 15, 7 through 13. Paul writes, accept one another then, 
just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with power. Thus far in God's word, let's look to him in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, who is able rightly to proclaim your word in these matters. Only your spirit can give that unction, that insight, that understanding, that facility with expression that will properly convey what you have said to each of us, to me, and to these your hearers assembled this day. So Holy Spirit, speak to us through the words that you have given and may we see Jesus, and through him the Father. For we pray it in your triune name. Amen. Hope can mean something very, very profound. But hope can be used as an expression for something rather trivial, too. I hope the baby will be a boy. That's not trivial. I hope I get a good grade on the test. That's maybe not quite so serious. I hope it doesn't rain. Well, maybe for next Saturday anyway. <laughs> hope. We often use the hope in very word hope in very different ways, don't we? Sometimes quite trivial. But when the Apostle Paul uses the term in this great benediction in verse 13, he means something profoundly different. You see, he's teaching us here in that verse and in the context surrounding it. That our, as believers, our confident expectation of God's faithfulness to his covenant purposes is what grounds our hope and transforms all of life and every relationship. And that truth is underscored by the threefold themes of the source of our hope, the scope of our hope, and the savor or fragrance of our hope. I'd like for us to look briefly at each of those this day. First, the source of our hope. The believer's hope is God himself. The God of hope, Paul says in verse 13. Now, he's not saying that hope is God. It's speaking of the God of hope. That can be taken two ways, and they're both correct. That is, that God is the origin, the source of our hope, and we'll... Talk about that more in just a minute. And also, that he's the object of our hope. He's the one we hope in. He's the one who gives us hope. 
He's the one in whom we place our hope. Let's consider each of those just very briefly. First, our hope is anchored in and comes from God himself. It's grounded in the enduring attributes and covenantal character of our God who gives us that hope, who extends that hope. And therefore, it's ultimately directed toward the God of hope, the God of redemptive history. <clears throat> history doesn't just happen. I learned some time ago that history is not simply a recording of an assembly of different facts of things that happen. No, historians sift through all of those things and select just a few of them. Why? For the purpose of conveying meaning, conveying a story. And history, as is often said, truly said, history is his, his story. And that's what the Bible gives to us. It tells us how God made a creation that was good. And one day will be again. More on that later. But also that this world is not the way God made it. We're not the way we were first created to be. Because sin has ruined us and our world. Not totally ruined not smushed it into unrecognizable nothingness. No, but it's scarred. It's defaced. It's made so it doesn't work the way it was designed. Our relationships are not the way God meant them to be when we were sinlessly in the garden with our Maker. Our relationship with God and with each other, even our relationship with God's creation around us, it doesn't work quite right. Things go wrong. There are tsunamis on Christmas Day in Indonesia and in Thailand and in India. A quarter of a million people die. Merry Christmas. The world isn't the way God made it to be. There's an outbreak of Ebola, even as I speak, in Western Africa. Uh, there have been huge earthquakes that have leveled cities around the world. Things aren't the way God made them originally to be. Creation's groaning, Paul says. In chapter uh, 8 of, uh, of this very epistle to the Romans. But God didn't leave us there. That's what the book is about. Immediately following the entrance of sin into the world, he begins to pursue those that he had specially made in his own image. He speaks and everything else springs into being in Genesis chapter 1, but not so with the image bearers that he creates in a special stewardship place to be his vice regents on earth. Those he makes in his own image and in his likeness, those he gives a dominion and cultural mandate to not subdue in the sense of repressing, but to order, make orderly his creation. Along, along what pattern? A pattern we make up? No, the pattern he gave us in the garden. Expanding the garden 
until it encompassed the whole of his world. When he'd finished creation, he said it was very good. But the whole world wasn't yet a garden. That was what he put Adam and Eve in the garden to do. To follow that example, that paradigm, and to build it. And when we lost that, God sought us. From the beginning, he promised that one would come. The seed of the woman. The only time, only time in the Bible that the word seed is used of a woman. It's always the fruit of the womb for the woman. The seed of the man. But God said the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. At great cost to himself, uh, the serpent will injure, as it were, the heel of that seed. And there will be warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Jesus could say to those who opposed him in his day, you are of your father the devil. And the truth of God is not in you. There is down through the pages of the history of redemption recorded for us in scripture, a bifurcation of humanity. Those who belong to the seed and those who belong to the serpent. And the irony is that God is the one who chooses those who had been in the serpent's realm and saves them out of it and places them instead in the kingdom of his son. That's what the Bible's about. That's the history. Our hope is ultimately directed toward the God of redemptive history in uh, the preceding uh, verses to, that we've just read, we read that uh, uh, in verse 8, on behalf of God's truth, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, truth and mercy. And those are the same two words in the original language of the, in which Paul wrote uh, that, use, that are used to translate into that language, the Greek language, the original Hebrew of one of the Psalms that Paul quotes, Psalm 117. He quotes the first half of that in uh, verse 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. And that's the first verse of Psalm 117. It only has two verses. What's the second half? The second half is why? For Great is his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy, it's that same word, toward us. And the truth, there's that word that Paul also has used here, of the Lord, endures rock solid forever. See, our hope is grounded in the covenant faithfulness of our God, the foundation of of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And of course, the last part is our responsibility as a result of that. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, from rebellion against him. We're either for him or we're not. Well, I remember that, uh, that in the world religions, many of the religions of the world, if you go around, uh, especially the folk religions, people are not interested so much in the hereafter. 
Most people in the world, folk Islam, a folk Buddhism, I dare to say folk Christianity, and the New Age, which is folk uh, secular humanism <laughs> today. Uh, it, that people are primarily interested in the here and now, getting things. Uh, if, if there's some notion of a god or a, a magical power or vibrations being in tune with alignment of the planets, whatever it happens to be, it's to get something we want for now. And that's not what hope in the Bible is about. It doesn't mean God isn't concerned for the daily bread. Jesus said, pray for it, but no, our Heavenly Father knows we need these things before we even ask Him. But we pray for it. But it's not like we're trying to manipulate a power to get what we want. We trust and submit ourselves to Him. We walk in step with Him, and we're confident He will provide. Had a little discussion before the service with someone um, about the uh, widow and her two mites in the New Testament. You know what's striking to me about that story? You remember the story, perhaps. Uh, Jesus standing in the temple or sitting in the temple and watching all these rich people come up to the treasury box. It was put on display so everybody could see what everybody gave. And they would come up, rich people, make a big show of how much they put in. Uh, next guy came up, okay, I'll one-up that. And they were pretty wealthy, so it didn't make a dent, but they could show off. Jesus said that's what they were doing. And then, furtively, came a poor widow. She was probably not well-dressed. She came up, and all she put in were two tiny coins. They were hardly enough for a sandwich, if you will. And then, presumably, she shuffles away inconspicuously, hoping no one noticed how little she'd put in. And Jesus called his disciples, you remember, to himself, and he says, he says to them, you see this? You know, all those other people gave out of their largesse, out of all their abundance. But this woman put in all she had to live on. All she had. How could she do that? Well, that leads me to the observation. What's missing in the narrative? not really missing, what appears to us perhaps to be missing, to me at least. I think, well, well hurry, Jesus, send, send your disciples after her, take care of her, give her something. And we're not that, told that that happened. There's no record of Jesus sending somebody quickly to, to find her and to take care of that. Why? Didn't he care? Oh, of course he cared. But he knew the same thing he had known when he sent his disciples out two by two, saying, don't take any money with you. God will take care of you. Your Heavenly Father will take care of you. He knew that the Heavenly Father, the widow trusted, had cared for her, was caring for her, and would continue to care for her. She had learned that lesson. When I thought about that, I was convicted. Perhaps you are too. Maybe not. You're way ahead of me. 
in terms of learning about our Heavenly Father's care and faithfulness. Our hope is that way. But you see, our hope anchored in and coming from God, also directed to God as its source, is a hope that is, extends into every aspect of our lives and relationships with God, with each other, with the creation around us. You see, the believer's hope embraces every relationship and all of creation. Verse 13 says, overflow with hope. Overflow. Overflow how far, Paul? Well, it tells us in the text. Hope includes, to begin with, the believer's personal salvation, our relationship with God. How? Faith. Paul says, as you trust in Him. What does it mean, as you trust in Him? I talk with people sometimes. I say, uh, do you believe in Jesus? And the person says, of course I believe in Jesus. I said to him, well, then why are you Hare Krishna? <laughs> he dressed up, you know. He said, I believe in Jesus and all that. And I said, Jesus isn't all that. He's Lord. <laughs> he's more than all that. <laughs> well, I mean, he's one of the avatars, you see, of Krishna. No, he's not. You see, when you say, as you trust in him, what is it you're trusting in? Who is your Jesus? Is he a mere man, historical figure? Then he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Jesus of history who really walked this planet as God incarnate, born of a virgin, in order to enter our world without ceasing to be God. He took a human nature so that the one person with both a divine nature and a human nature, could experience what you and I do, but without sin. And he could therefore take our place upon the cross. That's what we've been singing about. And so when Jesus stretched out his arms willingly, understand this, those nails could not have held him had he not willed to remain there. He could call even then 12 legions of angels. One would have been enough. <laughs> and immediately put paid to all his adversaries. But then where would redemption have been? See, we deserve to die for our sins. Because God's that holy. He didn't say, well, it was a peccadillo. That's a Latin term for a little sin. <laughs> and he says it's sin. And an infinitely holy God is infinitely injured in his honor by any affront to his perfection and holiness. And it owes an infinite debt that only the infinite Son of God could pay. God so loved the world, grasped that soul, loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him a savior substitute lord believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and that gospel should never grow old to us because every day of our christian life after we've made that commitment of trust we should come back to that same truth that same gospel and say thank you lord i'm facing a problem today that's bigger than i am but it's not bigger than you. 
I don't know the outcome. It may be embarrassing for me. It may be hard for me. It may have consequences that are difficult for those that I love and am, am responsible for, but I know you already know what it's going to bring because you've ordained it for me for my good because you have said that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. Hope grounded in God. It begins with our faith in him and it goes beyond that to the salvation of Israel. You Gentiles rejoice with his people. It's not in place of his people. It's not done with them. You, your turn. No, no, no. It's you too can come to the God of Abraham and be embraced by this God as a part of his family, his covenant household. And so Paul would write the Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Hope also includes the salvation of the nations, not just you and I if we're Gentiles here today but also all the nations. And the word nations, ethne, in, in the original writing refers to people groups, really does. Not modern nation states. We think in terms of nations as members of the United Nations, you know. No, no, no. It's, it's people groups. God intends all the people groups to hear the gospel and some an innumerable throng from every tribe and nation and people and tongue one day to gather around the throne of our Redeemer and sing together the song of the Lamb, a song that, as Edmund Clowney, the late Dr. Edmund Clowney points out, that song is not a song that any angel can sing, but only the redeemed humanity and the redeemed heaven and earth together with us. And that brings me to the last part. Hope extends also to the renewal of the universe itself, the cosmos. Prior context in, ver in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, we read, <clears throat> The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, listen, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We sang of that freedom today. I am set free. Ho, 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 ho. Uh, that's a delighted expression. It's uh, searching for words. It's jumping up and down inside with joy. I am set free. It is for freedom that I have been set free. Contrast that with, with Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where God puts judgment on, on Satan in, in representation, uh, represented by the serpent who was really in that garden. The serpent was there, and he was, it was the, the uh, uh, instrument by which Satan had seduced and and overthrown the righteousness of the first generation of human beings. And God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Uh, you will uh, he will strike, crush your head and you will strike his heel. And then we read in Romans chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. 
as he, Paul concludes this epistle, he says, uh, everyone who has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you, but I want you to be, now listen, wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And what does that harken back to? The tree, the temptation was to partake of the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were not ever in, intended originally to experience what it's like to be evil as well as what it's like to be good. That's not God's intention. That we know what it's like to be Satan as well as knowing what it's like to be God-fearing. No, no, no. Satan says, God's holding you back. He knows that the day you eat it, you'll become, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, said the serpent. What's Paul say here? Chapter 16, to the believers at Rome. He says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Restoration, you see, the healing, the moving back toward, the recreation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, the God of peace will soon, and then he uses a warlike expression, the God of peace will soon make ultimate war, is what he's saying. Will soon crush Satan under your feet shortly. Reference right back to Genesis 3.15 and the first giving of the gospel, even in the garden immediately following the entrance of sin into the world. And how is God doing it? He's doing it through his son as his son acts in and through the body of Christ by the Spirit of God in you and in me. We think, I'm so far from fully sanctified. That's right, I'm glad you recognize. If you don't, you're farther than you thought. <laughs> but if you recognize that you are far from the place that you need one day to be, that's a good place to be. Looking to the Lord and realizing that in spite of our frailties, in spite of our shortcomings and inadequacies, that the Spirit of God is at work in us, and by His Spirit, Christ inwardly dwells in us, acts through us, and we are fragrant. And that leads us, you see, to the Savior. You see, we're intended to be different. We're not, we're not migrants. Migrants are people who come to stay. We aren't come to stay in a fallen world as it is. Nor are we merely sojourners. Sojourners come and stay for a while, but they don't intend to grow roots because they expect to go back where they came from. We're not migrants. We're not sojourners. We are pilgrims. What's the difference? Pilgrims come from somewhere else traveling through and stay for a while, but they're on a mission and they have a destination and they're going there. Christian, you're a pilgrim. Here we have no continuing city. Our citizenship is in heaven and we wait for a city from above. Abraham looked for a city without foundations whose builder and architect is God. You see, we have a hope that is yet to be revealed. And so we are pilgrims here, 
And that's important because as I speak, I tremble as I say it, as I speak, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Syria and Iraq who are this day being crucified for their faith in Christ, killed, martyred, this day. I don't know what our State Department's doing about it. But I do know that Jesus looks on that. It's not out of his control. There's nothing perhaps you can do about that or I can do about it other than lift them up before the Lord and remember that we belong to them and they to us. And Christ through the body is doing something and he often does it through suffering and through martyrdom. And that points to the savor, the fragrance of Christ, because our hope is ultimately doxological. There are five different terms for worship used in the section of verses 7 through 13, our text today. And the five different terms for worship, that suggests to me the inexhaustible richness of our worship of God. And that's our highest calling. Remember after God wiped the humanity from the earth and began again with a family of Noah after the, they came God told them to leave the ark where they had been preserved with some of the animals and, and uh, he come off the ark at God's command and he offered an offering we're told and we're told that in chapter 8 of Genesis that God smelled the sweet savor of the offering the sweet savor. Why? God sniffs at burning animals? No, no, no. It's more than that. It's not that. It points to something. It points to the death of a substitute who would yet come, the seed of the woman, and what he would one day do. And then notice here in, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, uh, Paul writes these words, but Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Did you know you're a fragrance being spread by God throughout the world? A fragrance that He delights in and a fragrance that is known by others. For those that are coming to Christ, it's the fragrance of life. And for those who turn their backs on him, it is the stench of death, Paul says. Here in our text, Paul writes about it. He says, may that fill you with joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Joy, peace, <laughs> they're among the facets of the fruit of the Spirit. They're not eight fruits of the Spirit. There's an eight-sided fruit, singular, of the Spirit, by the way. It's one fruit. You can't choose which one you're going to have. It's all of it or nothing. <laughs> you may develop one side more than the other and need to work on some, but you have all of them if you have the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, joy and peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, See the work of God in our lives. The whole of Scripture converges in the worship and praise of God in our whole lives. Paul includes citations from all three of the Hebrew sections of the Bible. From the law, the Torah, from the prophets, and from the writings. The Navim and Kethavim. That implies to me that 
the purpose of God in all of redemptive history is the central theme of the great story about the one hero, capital H, of that story. And you'll never find the meaning and significance of your story until you find it in the context of the great story that God is weaving and into which he leaves your life and mine if you're his child. You see, and for that reason, God's blessing evokes both prayer and praise. I won't go into the grammar except to say the, the context here, uh, the content here. Uh, the form of the verb is the form of uh, the verb form that indicates, we'd say, tense. It doesn't have to do with past, present, or future. It has everything to do with viewing it as completed, whether past, present, or future. It's completed. And the mood of it is not the mood of simply declaring that, the fact. It's not the mood of wishful thinking, were it that way. It's not the mood of imperative, make it so. It's the mood of prayer. See, for those who are scholars, optative mood. It's the mood of prayer. And that's significant because you see, his prayer for the Romans given to us here is not a prelate sacerdotal or priestly inactive formula. It's not something officiously passed from the minister to the people. It's a prayer for God to bless his people, but it's grounded in the hope that that is God's purpose, his declared purpose, and therefore can be trusted. Jesus says, if you, uh, if you pray for anything in my name, my Father will give it. The Apostle John says, we know that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know if he hears us, we have that for which we've asked him. The key is not to change God's heart so he'll want what we want. The key is for him to change our hearts so we'll want what he wants, and then we'll see prayer effectually, brothers and sisters. I saw pastor giving a benediction in a Presbyterian church, actually, uh, some distance from here. You won't know who the pastor was of the church, but uh, he gave the benediction. As he gave it, he unconsciously made the sign of the cross. <laughs> now, I'm not picking on the sign of the cross, but I thought, ooh, I wonder why he did that, you see. Well, it wasn't intentional on his part. It kind of slipped out. It's because of his view of what the benediction was. We need to be careful about it. The benediction is not primarily, and in every case, uh, the declaration, I am blessing you. No, no. It's hear what God is saying to you. And it's not because it's the minister who pronounces it. It's because God has pronounced it. Some hold their hands out to receive the blessing. That's not wrong. God said to Moses, have Aaron bless the people, saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his count, uh, make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he says, so shall Aaron place my name upon the people and I will bless them. That's true. Most of the blessings, most of the benedictions we find in Scripture are not God's placing his name upon his people. Most of them are like this one. In chapter 13, 
verse 7 of Romans. A prayer to God Almighty with the confident assurance that He will hear that prayer and has already heard it. He's the God who answers before we call and hears while we are speaking in accordance with His will. Well, our text today has addressed the source, the scope, and the savor of our hope, teaching us that our confident expectation of God's faithfulness in, to His redemptive covenant is what transforms all of life and every relationship. Some years ago, uh, a uh, young mother had several children, but she stood that day in a funeral home next to the very small casket of her two-year-old son. And beside her stood the weeping figure of her nine-year-old boy. And one by one, neighbors and friends, they didn't have many because from that area, that wasn't where they were from when the child had drowned. But people came through, they'd heard about it, and they wanted to express condolences, and they did. But one woman came shuffling up and said, oh, it must be hard for you. To think that you'll never see your child again. Those words struck like a knife through the soul of that nine-year-old boy. But then his mother squared her shoulders, captured her breath, and looked the woman in the eye and said, Oh, no. Oh, no, you are wrong. I shall see my child again. For I have God's covenant promise, and my hope is in that God. The woman who'd spoken to the mother was taken aback, sort of didn't know what to make of it, shuffled off. The child and the mother never, as far as I know, saw her again. I have no idea what impact that young mother's words had on that woman. No idea at all. But I can give an attestation that they profoundly affected her nine-year-old son because I was that nine-year-old son. Brothers and sisters, what we do and how we respond in hope, hope grounded in who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and all the promises he's endowed us, that can see us through crucifixion martyrdom in Syria. It can see you through your unemployment or your cancer. It can see you through that time of strained relationship in your family relationships. He's a God of hope and he's covenant keeping in Jesus. Let's pray.